Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. You know, sometimes are so bad that you've just got to find a way to laugh in the face of your circumstances. Now, the pandemic in itself was no laughing matter, and certainly some of our family suffered tremendously because of it. The last three years have probably been the most difficult three-year stretch of my life that I can remember. And many of you will say the same thing, to be sure. It seems like, you know, during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, we just didn't laugh a whole lot. Maybe we couldn't find the humor in what we were going through. Uh, but maybe now that the worst of it seems to be behind us, we can afford to, to look back and laugh a little bit, particularly about the quarantine days of the pandemic. Here's uh, one woman who says, my husband purchased a world map and then gave me a dart and said, throw this and wherever it lands, that's where I'm taking you when the pandemic ends. Turns out, she says, we're spending two weeks behind the fridge. <laughs> Somebody else says, ran out of toilet paper. Remember that? <laughs> ran out of toilet paper and started using lettuce leaves. Today was just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Tomorrow remains to be seen. <laughs> yeah, Ken is really laughing at that. That's his kind of joke. Somebody else says, my mom always told me I wouldn't accomplish anything by lying in bed all day, but look at me now, Ma, I'm saving the world. Another woman says, after years of wanting to thoroughly clean my house and saying I lack the time, during quarantine, I discovered that wasn't the reason. <laughs> and here's my favorite one. Who, you know, the World Health Organization, announced that dogs cannot contract COVID-19. Dogs previously held in quarantine can now be released. So now we know who let the dogs out. <laughs> when times are difficult, we can try to distract ourselves with humor. Others of us will try to fortify ourselves by embracing brave sounding slogans like faith over fear, we're in this together, stay home, save lives. But slogans like jokes don't do much to help us in the hardest of times. Jokes may distract us and slogans may make us sound brave, but when times are at their worst, what we really need to help us through them is what the prophet Daniel had. Knowledge of and a relationship with the one who is the architect of human history. Daniel was one who not only survived one of the most difficult times in his people's history, he and his friends thrived in it. Taken captive to Babylon as young men from their country, 
Daniel and his friends navigated through some of the worst circumstances that life could throw at them. They survived the threats of a pagan king. They survived a fiery furnace. They survived a night spent with hungry lions. They lived courageously in the face of the worst of circumstances. And not only can we draw strength from looking at the stories of Daniel and his friends in the first six chapters of Daniel by looking at their example and learning from them, but in the second half of Daniel, he writes down prophecies meant to fortify his people for even worse times that are still to come. Now, we looked at one of those prophecies last week in Daniel chapter 7, where we learned that our future is held firmly in the hands of the Father. Let's look now at Daniel chapter 8 and the second of the prophetic visions that were given to Daniel. This one is the vision of a ram, a goat, and a tiny horn. It's a prophecy of the worst tyrant to afflict the Jewish people until Hitler himself. Someone so bad that many scholars, and I I agree with them, they see this one as a foreshadowing of the Antichrist of the last days. Uh, Daniel chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So this would be two years after the first vision that he had in chapter 7, the one we looked at last week, the vision of the four beasts and the little horn, which means that this would be about the year 550 B.C., So it's still 11 years before the time that the Babylonians would fall to the Medes and Persians, be conquered by them as described in Daniel chapter five. So these two visions, the vision of chapter seven and chapter eight happen between the events of chapters uh, five and six, if that makes any sense to you. And Daniel says, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal, which is kind of unusual because Daniel is in Babylon when he's having the vision, but in the vision he's transported to this uh, other city, Susa, about 100 miles away, and a city that hadn't really yet risen to prominence. In, In a century later, it would become the summer capital of the Persian Empire, the next empire that would rule the world scene. And so this appears to be a a prophecy not about Babylon, but about this next empire, the Persian Empire, and he's transported to to, uh, Susa where this vision takes place. By the way, Susa is the the city that will figure very prominently in the stories of Nehemiah and Esther in the Old Testament. He says in verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. Now you may remember the the image of the bear in chapter seven. It was a bear that was raised up higher on one side than the other. Well, this is the same empire. It's the Medo-Persian empire. There were two people groups that composed this empire, the Medes and the Persians, and the Persians came up last, but they were the greater of the two people groups. And so that's what's being depicted here. In about a decade's time, the Medes and Persians will become the dominant world power for the next 200 years. And that's what verse 4 describes. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Well, the Persian Empire became the greatest empire the world to date had ever seen, extending as far west as Greece, as far south as Egypt, and as far east as India. But no empire lasts forever. 
And before long, another world power would arise from the West to take its place. In verse 5, he says, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the West across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. It's going that fast, it barely touches the ground. And the goat with a conspicuous had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. So it's like a unicorn goat with this great big horn between its eyes. Now back in chapter seven, this same empire was depicted by a leopard with four wings moving swiftly to attack the bear. So we've got the same two empires here, the Medo-Persian empire and then the Greeks under Alexander the Great who were known for the rapidity with which they moved their armies and subdued enemy after enemy. And as Pastor Ken mentioned last week, within a matter of 10 years, Alexander, depicted here by the goat's single great horn, had conquered the whole known world. It says, he came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing at the bank of the canal and he ran into him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. The Greek empire under Alexander the Great grew larger than any empire before it, ruthlessly conquering the Persians in particular as revenge for the way Persian armies had treated the Greeks a hundred or so years before. And the goat, it says, became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, so this is at the height of his power, at the height of Alexander's power, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, Daniel is seeing this 200 years before it happens. Having accomplished so much, Alexander died as a young man in 323 BC, and he had to leave his empire behind to four generals who would divide it up among them, none of them as strong as Alexander. And Israel will become a political football being pulled back and forth between two of these Greek kingdoms for the next 200 years after that. So between the ram and the goat, the Persians and the Greeks, and then the Greek kings, the Ptolemies in the south in Egypt and the Seleucids up north in Syria. Uh, Daniel is, is talking about or is being shown here who are the world powers that will attempt to impose their will on God's people for the next 400 years. And in case you're wondering how we can be so sure that that's what is going on here in the story of the ram and the goat, it's because in Daniel's vision, Daniel himself says, what does this mean? And he's given the answer. He's given an interpreter. In verse 15, it says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So the man who is giving instructions to Gabriel must be the Lord himself. Who else can boss around an archangel? And Daniel is assigned an archangel of the Lord to interpret the vision for him. Yeah, this is the same Gabriel who will come to Mary and announce that she's going to be the mother of Messiah. It's the same Gabriel who will appear to Joseph in a dream and, and reassure him that it's okay to take Mary as his wife. Well, Gabriel, the messenger of God, is given the interpretation of the dream to give to Daniel. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. That's what usually happens when you're confronted by an angel. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. It's not for right now, it's for later. 
And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, namely Alexander, the greatest of all the Greek kings. As for the horn that was broken and the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. So God is giving Daniel right down to the detail uh, what is going to happen for the next 400 years. Now, why would he do that? Why would God spell it out this way, give Daniel this vision and be so explicit in the explanation of it? And by this time, you might be asking, yeah, and what does any of this have to do with us? Well, I think that there's a pastoral purpose in God doing this for his chosen people, the Jews, and there's a pastoral purpose for it, even for us, Daniel's readers, all these centuries later. You see, what the stories of Daniel taught us by the example of Daniel and his friends, Daniel's visions in chapter 7 through 12 teach us prophetically that we can face the worst of times with courage. We can face the worst of times with courage. And there are two insights in this passage that I think help us do that. Two insights that will help us face even the worst of times with courage. The first of the insights that I see in the passage here is that God's knowledge of the times is complete. God's knowledge of the times is complete. There isn't anything that takes him by surprise. Isn't it comforting to know that, that as things in our world get crazier and crazier, that none of this is taking God by surprise, but that he's at work in all of it and will work it out for good, making sure that we'll all turn out right? Doesn't it help you to know that God is the one who determines what empires get to rule and for how long? Doesn't it comfort you to know that God is the one who has his hand on the thermostat as his children go through the fire? That God is the one who sets a timer and determines when a despot's time is up? That God is the one who knows what the next 400 years holds for us as surely as he knew what the next 400 years would hold for Daniel's people? That should be tremendously comforting to us. That even in the face of the worst of times, we can face them with courage knowing that the powers that be can throw their worst at us, but in the end, Jesus wins and we will reign with him. I mean, think of what the next 400 years would be like for the people living in Jerusalem, for instance. There will hardly be a time in those 400 years when, when they could sit back and say, wow, aren't times good? <laughs> because they weren't good. The golden age of Israel under David and Solomon was long gone, and it wasn't coming back anytime soon. Under the Persians, at least, Jews would be permitted to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, but they would always be under the thumb of whatever despot ruled over them, whether the Persians or the Greeks or which of the Greek kings, whether the Ptolemies or the Seleucids. And for 400 years, they could open the scroll of Daniel and see that none of this was taking God by surprise. Okay, they say we must be living in the time when God said the ram would rule, the time of the Persians well, the Greeks have come storming in from the west, so this must be the time of the goat and, and the big horn. And now Alexander is dead. That means the, 
the big horn is being replaced with the four smaller horns, his generals, none of whom is as powerful as Alexander. God's knowledge of the times is complete. Nothing takes him by surprise. He knows what will happen in the next 400 years as surely as he could show Daniel in 550 BC what would be happening right down to 167 BC. He knows the end from the beginning and he is there for us through it all. That should give us courage for whatever is happening in our times, in our lives, to know that God's knowledge of the times is complete. Nothing takes him by surprise. I was talking with Diane this week about how challenging it is to preach from Daniel's prophecies and and show the relevance of them for our lives. And I explained how in Daniel chapter 7, one of the themes that we'd be talking about is, is how complete God's knowledge is of the times. And she said, oh, that reminds me of my prayer journal. And I said, well, tell me about it. Now, before I tell you about her prayer journal, let me give some context of things that Diane and I have been talking about in recent months. Yeah, and most of you know that I announced in November that my plan, Lord willing, is to step down from this position uh, probably in the fall of this year and uh, not to retire. Don't use the word retirement around me. I'm redeploying, Amen. right? So the, <laughs> the idea of redeploying is I'm not going to be done with ministry. I'm just going to be doing it a little less frequently. <laughs> you know, I'd like to dial back a little bit. And uh, what kind of ministry I'll be involved in? Well, I've got some ideas that are cooking around. I don't have any clue yet exactly what that will look like. The other thing that we're talking about is that when I redeploy, we'd like to downsize, get into a smaller place. And, and so interesting conversations are happening at our house. Things like we're putting away the Christmas decorations and Diane says, huh, I wonder where we'll put these up next year. It's like, oh, wow, hadn't thought of that. Or she'll say something like, You know, in all the years that we've been married, we've never announced that we were leaving one position without knowing exactly where the next one was. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's true too. We're kind of walking by faith this year. We're kind of stepping out and saying, okay, God, uh, we we don't know what this is all going to look like when 2023 shakes out, but we're trusting you. So she said, when I said, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about Daniel 8 and this theme of how God knows the future completely and knows the times completely. She said, well, that reminds me of a prayer journal. And I said, well, tell me about that. And she showed me in her prayer journal, there's this line that says, think on a quality of the Lord to meditate on this year. And she wrote down his omniscience. He's all knowing. He alone knows my, parenthesis, our future. I will trust him for my days, my plans. And I said, oh, that's interesting that that's what you wrote down because when I heard somebody say, hey, think about a word that describes what you're going to trust God for in the coming year, the word that immediately came to my mind was direction. So we're on the same page, right? We're both trusting the Lord for the same thing. And, and then her prayer journal says, write a verse or verses that you want to meditate on that will you know, help you think about this quality of God. And she came up with four that are really good. Matthew 10.30 but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. That's basically saying the same thing as saying, you know, God's understanding of the times is complete. His understanding is infinite. 
Psalm, Isaiah 45, verse 10, my purpose will stand and I will do it, do it all that I please. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. It's comforting that the Lord knows his plans. We're just saying, okay, Lord, whenever you want to show us, we're good. We're ready to, ready to hear what you want to show us. So one of the things that gives us courage as Diane and I lean into the uncertainties of this year is what being, Daniel's being shown in his vision here. That God's knowledge of the times is complete. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's, he knows what he's doing, and when the time is right, he'll show us what we need to know. Now, as good as it is to trust in God when things are relatively good, as they are for Diane and and me, it's a whole other thing to live courageously in the worst of times, like those that are described in the rest of Daniel's vision here in chapter 8. Remember up to this point, the, the ram has ruled and then been destroyed by the goat, and the goat had a horn, and then the horn was broken, and four other horns came up after it. Well, here's what happens next in the vision, verse 9. Out of one of them, out of one of the horns on the goat came up a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land. In other words, toward Israel itself. Now remember, Daniel is having this vision in 550 BC and the events that are being described here take place 375 years later, in about 175 BC, when a Greek king known as Antiochus IV comes up in the, the Seleucid, the Syrian part of the Greek kingdoms, and he, he begins small, but he, he starts gaining power and more power and more power. And by 170 BC, he's waging war against Egypt and, and taking Jerusalem, taking possession of Jerusalem. And, and the more military success he has, the more full of himself he becomes, declaring himself Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which means glorious one or illustrious one. To which the Jews respond by saying, uh, Antiochus IV Epimanes, not Epiphanes. Epimanes meaning madman, which he really was. And, and it says in verse 10, it grew, that this, the influence of this king grew even to the host of heaven, as if he would take on God himself. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now remember, this is apocalyptic kind of literature, and these images are very vivid. It doesn't mean that he literally threw stars down from the heaven to the earth. But remember what the Old Testament said in Genesis? When, when God said to Abraham, look at the sky and see the stars, so shall your offspring be. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. And so likely what's happening here is the prophecy seems to be saying that Antiochus IV would become so great in his own mind that he would defy God himself, killing some of God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, throwing some of God's stars to the earth. And indeed, Antiochus burned with a particular hatred for the Jewish people. Verse 11, it says, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host, which some take to be the Messiah, uh, and, and, that, and then this is a figure of the Antichrist, but in the immediate context, it's almost certainly talking about the, the high priest, who is the highest ranking Jewish official. 
And the regular burnt offering was taken away from the prince of the host, taken away from the high priest, and, take, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. All of this speaks of the horrible atrocities that Antiochus would commit against the Jewish people. Antiochus, as I mentioned, has been called the Jews' greatest villain up until Hitler himself. He waged war against the Jewish religion. He transformed the temple of God into a worship center for Zeus. He declared himself there to be God incarnate. He forced young boys to undergo reverse circumcision operations. He flogged an aged Jewish priest to death because he refused to eat pork. He forbade the observance of of the Jewish law, the Sabbath, the high holy days. He banned Jewish sacrifice at the, te at the temple. He killed thousands of Jews who dared defy him. He was bent on wiping out the Jewish religion. And in one of his most notorious acts, he sacrificed a pig on an altar inside the holy of holies of the temple itself, smearing pig blood all over the place, which of course was a desecration of that holy place. Daniel's prophecy is warning that however bad times may have been under the Babylonians or the Persians, and even under some of the Greeks, the very worst of times will come at the hands of this horrible little horn who will be empowered by Satan himself. Look at how Gabriel describes this guy in his explanation of the vision in verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. That suggests that he is empowered by demons, by Satan. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints, God's people. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And, and that's exactly what would happen. The worst of times for the Jews, especially in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, the worst of times would begin in 167 B.C., when Antiochus, without warning, would turn with fury against Jerusalem and impose his godless will with a vengeance against the Jews, stopping the sacrifices, desecrating the temple, setting himself up as God incarnate, putting up an image of Zeus in, in the holy place. All these atrocities, killing tens of thousands of Jews, anyone who defied him, all of that would begin in 167 BC. Now, why is God giving Daniel this vision? Daniel finds it so disturbing, it tells us in the last verse of the chapter, verse 27, that he couldn't go back to work for a couple of days. It took, he was so wiped out by it, it took a few days before he could collect himself to get back to work. So why is Daniel being told these things? God says it's for the generation still to come. He says, seal up this scroll because it's not for now. It's for another time. And it's particularly for those who would live through those times yet to come, especially through the time of Antiochus Epiphany's reign of, of terror in Jerusalem. He wants them to live courageously even in the worst of times. He wants them to understand not only that God's knowledge of the times is complete, but also that God's judgment of evil is certain. That's the second insight that helps us live courageously in even the worst of times. God's knowledge of the times is complete and God's judgment of evil is certain. Nothing takes God by surprise and he won't let it go on forever. Antiochus' days are numbered. Look at verse 13. 
which says, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? How long is this going to go on? And the, the holy one said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. It's not going to go on forever. 2,300 mornings and evenings. This is probably a reference to the morning and evening sacrifices at the, at the temple. So 2,300 evenings and mornings would equate to about 1,150 days or just over three years. That means that Antiochus will afflict God's people in some of the worst ways imaginable, but God says, hang in there. It's not going to go on forever. It's going to go on for just over three years. Now, God tells them about the 2,300 mornings and days, not so that they can begin making prophetic calculations, as so many people seem bent on doing these days. He he's, tells them not for a predictive purpose, but for a pastoral one, as an encouragement to those who would live through those days to stay strong because it won't go on forever. You need to know that Antiochus' days are numbered. God will pull him up short. It says in verse 23, Gabriel says of Antiochus, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He'll even try to take on God himself. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. In other words, God himself will take him out and then the, tab the temple will be restored to its normal function. So what happened? How did this all play out? Remember it all began in 167 BC? God said it would go on for a little over three years. Well, guess what? It was in 164, a little, after, a little more than three years after the time Antiochus started these atrocities in Jerusalem that Jewish freedom fighters under Judas Maccabeus liberated Jerusalem while Antiochus was off fighting elsewhere in his kingdom, stopping some other rebellion. And according to the tradition that has given rise to the celebration of Hanukkah, it was in cleansing and rededicating the temple that a lamp in the temple was lit that was supposed to have enough oil for one day, but it stayed lit for eight. And that's the miracle of Hanukkah. Meanwhile, Antiochus, in fury, resolved to return to Jerusalem and, and put down this rebellion and destroy the Jewish people. But according to 2 Maccabees, which is a historical Jewish document of the time, he died from a divinely inflicted disease. Listen to what Maccabees says about him. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. As soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with pain in his bowels for which there was no relief and with sharp internal tortures and that very justly for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange inflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, but he was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to drive even faster. And so it came about that he, he fell out of his chariot as he was rushing along. And, fell, and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. Thus he who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh the high mountains in a balance, he was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms, and while he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away, and because of the stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. How's that for comeuppance? 
Go God, huh? And God gave Daniel this vision 400 years in advance, telling him, write it down, Daniel, and seal up the scroll for the benefit of those who will need it many days from now. He was saying to the Jews who had lived through those days, and he's saying to us as we live through increasingly confusing and dark times, you can face these times with courage. My knowledge of the times is complete. My judgment of evil is certain. None of this is taking me by surprise, and I won't let it go on forever. I will bring those who afflict my people to justice. And that's the kind of courage Jesus himself displayed when he willingly endured the worst of times, the worst that anyone could ever do to a person, trusting in a father who knew what he was doing, knowing that glory awaited him on the other side of the grave, Jesus gave his life to liberate us from the tyranny of sin and death. And now as followers of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, we too can take such a view of things. As times grow darker and more threatening, we may be inclined to pray with Jesus, Father, let this cup pass from me. But we've got to also be prepared to pray with Jesus, yet not my will, but thine be done. When others are bent on evil toward us, we entrust ourselves into the hands of the the one who's got his hand on the timer, who will not let evil go on forever, but who will bring down judgment on all the Antiochuses of the world who dare afflict his people. The signs of the time don't seem to be pointing to better days anytime soon. I don't think we're going to be singing happy days are here again anytime soon, do you? If anything, it seems like we're living in that time when the Bible says things will continue to go from bad to worse. But Daniel teaches us that we can live courageously, even in the worst of times. God's knowledge of the times is complete. God's judgment of evil is certain. Nothing takes God by surprise, and he won't let it go on forever. We can count on him one day to vindicate us and set all things right. But we've got to be prepared to take a long view of things. Dare I say even a 400-year view? that will persevere even when things look really bad, even when it doesn't look like there's much hope. I think of the slaves of the Old South who were steeped in the stories of the Old Testament and took a long view with hope of their deliverance one day. After all, they reasoned, if God could take the children of Israel out of Egypt after 400 years and deliver them from slavery, maybe they could trust God to do the same for them. And so they held on in hope of a, of a sovereign God. Martin Luther King, whose birth our nation celebrates this week, took such a view. In one of his speeches, Where Do We Go From Here? He said, when our days become dreary with low hovering clouds of despair, and when our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, let us remember that there is a creative force in the universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil, a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Let us go out realizing that the Bible is right. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. 
Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall a man reap. This is our hope for the future. And with this faith, we will be able to sing in not in some not too distant tomorrow with a cosmic past tense, we have overcome. We have overcome. Deep in my heart, I did believe we would overcome. Courage to face even the worst of times. That's what you have when you entrust yourself to the one who knows the end from the beginning, the one who holds your times in his hands. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in a time when things are confusing and our culture seems to be growing darker. And some of us are inclined to be afraid of where all this is going. But Lord, we are so grateful to know that you are a God who knows the beginning from the end, to know that our times are in your hands, to know that none of this takes you by surprise, that you won't let it go on forever, that there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will reign in power and glory to rescue his own, to set all things right and make all things new. And Lord, I pray that you would fortify us with that confidence, confidence to walk in faith and trusting ourselves into the hands of a God who knows the beginning from the end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.